You're listening to the Barry Egan Tapes on News Talk. I'm Barry Egan of the Sunday Independent and my guest today is Jim Sheridan. Merry Christmas, Jim. Merry Christmas, Barry. Jim, take me back to your childhood. Um, the eldest of seven kids growing up in several places in, in Dublin's inner city. What, what was Christmas like in the 1950s to have seven kids in the family? And your mother had lodgers as well. Yeah, Christmas was always a great clear out. Um... All the lodgers went back to Tipperary or wherever they were from. The Ryans went to Tipperary and some of them went to Derry. And, yeah. Um, there was great, amazing fracas in um, Busaris because the six o'clock, if you didn't get the six o'clock bus, that means you didn't get home. So there were people would throw themselves in front of those buses going out on because I was in the lost and found, you know. And there was a fella, it was a lodger who Mick worked for Esso, and the strike was on the petrol strike, and he became the fella that you had to go to to get your petrol in any station in Dublin, and he had a drawer with checks and money in it all the bribes that he took during the petrol strike. And when the strike was over, Esso just came and tapped his shoulder and he was in court. What <laughs> year was that, roughly? 72, 3. Yeah. Yeah. And he was um, he was sent to... He was fired. And my dad got him a job in CIE. And the great thing about CIE was you couldn't get fired no matter what you did. Yeah. And he had a hat. And he had to sue. I didn't. I was just in the last. You know where you put in your stuff if you're going shopping? Um, it not lost and found, but, you know, just where you just put it for a day or something. And he was out front, and I remember him coming into work, and it, it, the boss said, where's Mick? And I'm like, I don't know, because he never turned up. He'd only come in at nine and disappear to the pub. Yeah. And he came back in about half twelve, and your man said to him, where were you? And he said, oh, I just went out for a pint. A milk. <laughs> but what, what was the Christmas dinner like with, with, oh, the, with well, all of you around the table? It was like, presumably it wasn't a big house. It wasn't a big house. there was house. a lot of kids. No, there were slidey doors uh, between the lodgers and us. You know, sliding doors? Yeah. And you could look in at the lodgers through a little crack in the door. But the the dinner was... Um, the dinner was big. I, I don't have that many... Because we would go to the granddads, you know, and that's what I remember most going up to the granddads. And before there was a car, PZC six six three. Um, everybody remembers the first <laughs> car, don't they? The number plate, and uh, we we'd go up to the granddads and get the bus from the keys, you know. And I remember on Christmas Day, yeah, Christmas night, you'd have to get the last bus, and um. Christmas was always stressful for me, Barry, to tell you the truth, you know. I don't know why, you know. Yeah, because uh, your, your brother Peter wrote that as the eldest son, you occupied a position of privilege in the family. Is that true? Yeah, well, of course it's true, yeah. I was, like, spoiled. Um, my mother would often come in. That In later years with the grandchildren, she'd come in and say things like, the dinner's not ready. Until um, until Jim is here. No, no, the dinners aren't ready, but she'd have like the leg of the turkey to hand to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd have to eat it in front of all the grandkids and my brothers and everything. 
But but uh, but Peter also wrote that um, Ma told him everything. He was the Ma's favorite, and she never did anything to hide it. Shay always took Ma's part when she fought with Dad. He was her little protector. She told him things she didn't even tell Dad. Is that was that true? I think it is true. Uh, I think it's largely true. Um, you know, Peter had the problem that he was called Peter. But your dad was Peter as well, yeah. wasn't he? So that. But the, you could have taken that as a problem. Why wasn't I called Peter? That's I exactly right. Born. Yeah, and so there was a little bit of uh, sibling rivalry, you could say. And he, I always judged him to be on my dad's side and I was on my ma's side. That was basically the war. Yeah. And um, it's amazing how much those things affect people. You know, like the when you're in a rage when you're two and you have no words for it, that stays with you forever because you've no way of externalising what you actually feel. So you feel families always fighting at Christmas because they're all going back to when they were two and before it. And they're all fucking enraged with each other, you know, and it just comes boiling out in words because it never did in the, when they were kids. And when your mother was dying, you filmed her on her deathbed. Yeah, and she, And she, you asked her questions and she said stuff like um, that she, she loved you and Peter the same. But yeah. Peter didn't believe this. You had to show him the, the film, didn't you? I did, yeah. That, that's, um, I, I hope he has the same memory of it as me. I did. I, it wasn't so much that I had to show him the film. It, it was that I was filming it, and Peter came in and me ma said, "Ah, Pete, Pete." And I, I don't think I'd ever heard him, heard her calling them that, you know. And um, in my memory, she said uh, something about like I loved you all the same, and I was like, um, I, I look and 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 I think I just said something stupid like, "No, ma, you love me" or something, you know. And she said, no, no, I love you all the same, no difference. But I was filming her. Yeah. So I was kind of just getting the last thing. And then I, I just gave the tape to Peter and I think he looked at it and he knew what she said more than I did. So I don't yeah. exactly know what she said. In 1967, your, your, your youngest brother, Frankie, yeah. died. That, he was, what was he, 10 or 11? He was 11, I think, yeah. How did that affect the family? That was huge. That was the biggest thing. That's the roundabout, I call it. That's the roundabout everybody goes to and never gets off. Yeah. You just keep going round the roundabout. It's a very difficult, you know, like I think, was, was it Bono had in a song, there's no end to love because there's no end to grief. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And was know. it after that that your, 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 your parents would bring other kids to swimming baths? Were they projecting yeah. their loss onto other kids? You think? Yeah, I think so. I think what it was was they were bringing kids and, you know, they'd come back saying, geez, this, that Charlie over the flats nearly drowned. I had to save him. So they were always saving kids, you know? Yeah. And it was like, to me, a kind of unconscious thing, you know? And was, with that unconscious thing was also in um, My Left Foot because Christy falls down the stairs, your brother yeah. fell, died yeah. from falling down yeah. the stairs. Yeah. Did, you, did you know that at the time you were do, doing that? Not really. I mean, what, ha what, what happened was when you're editing a movie or watching the same thing maybe a hundred times, maybe a thousand times. And so, like the way you have a picture there of some beach on your computer, it up came this picture of stairs every time I was in the editing. And it was the stairs in the posh house, the stairs in the poor house, the stairs in Christie's house. And I was like, there's an awful lot of stairs in this, you know. 
And then I realize, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with the stairs. And Christy falls, his mother falls down the stairs and Frankie fell down the stairs. So I, I began to see that, you know, your unconscious drives you and you're not really sometimes aware of the story you have to tell or want to tell. And I think most writers, when they're not in control of their material, the story is telling them yeah, as opposed to they're telling the story. So they're writing the same story over and over without ever being able to get out of it. And it's usually not any good because they haven't, you know, they haven't tamed the material. They haven't controlled it. I think every great artist, if they're, and and I'm not counting myself at all, but every great artist, like, if they're really good, probably tells the same story over and over, you know? Yeah. Like, um, Kubrick tells, uh, the mother can't protect you from the father. It's always about a mother, and it's always weird, and it's like, it, it's, um, you know, but he tells the same thing over and over. Sometimes he gets conscious of it, like, in in a, the space film, Space Odyssey, you know, that, that, that you know, Hal, Hal was a, a woman. Yeah. With a voice like on the underground, you know, stand clear of the doors. But he realized that would make it the mothership and that the man was dismantling the female mind and being reborn as a star child. And he didn't really want that story to be so obvious. So he totally went the other way and made Hal a deep baritone, you know. You had Frankie again in in in, Amer- in your movie in America. Yeah. Like you said that the, the deliberate lie is that you can't get over the death of a child. Yeah. And you talked about the Irish tradition. It's a huge problem that you you can't get over a death. And you talked about Joyce. Yeah. Who made his women in love with dead people almost. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's true of... It, it's singularly true of Joyce. And I think the dead is... The short story is probably the best thing ever written about the Irish famine, although it's not about the famine. And when I say the best thing, it's because in some way it it is an artistic achievement that puts the dead in perspective, you know. And like I'm watching this program on Irish television, which is a wonderful kind of evocation of the famine. But I'm just wondering what it's doing. I'm 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 wondering how many more mad people will we create with the you know this story that's never. That always leaves an anger and never a resolution, you know, and I don't know if it gets us anywhere. I mean, it would be probably a lot better to be really angry about it and be really honest and put it out there. And maybe in that way you get past it, but you don't get past it by kind of regurgitating the same thing. And um, I feel that's true of politics and I feel it's true of the North and you know um, that you can't kind of relive tragedies over and over you know there has to be some way of escaping them some way of uh, making them your own and taming them yeah how long did it did it take you to kind of make peace with your brother's death at, at such a young age because you were the big brother for with all the yeah, 
Well, I never did make peace with it. And the difficulty, you know, I think the problem, one of the problems I have is that I'm probably quite easily bored. And, and if I, you know, when I tell stories, I always tell them new or different way. I find, try to find some way to tell them. And I was doing a, a I was writing and Peter's writing a story. He's writing a play about that time and about Frankie, you know, and I wrote a movie about it. And it kind of stays with you because it's the end of innocence, you know. It's the end of your childhood, I suppose, even though I was a teenager. But for me, it was all mixed up with um, with grown up and sex and guilt and morality and, you know. Um, so it was all, uh, you know, it brought in, I think you you make a contract with God. You, you kind of, like, if Frankie doesn't die, I'll never sin again. That was kind of my deal. But you broke your contract, I'd say, like everybody I, else. Well, it's impossible not to. Yeah. And what really made me kind of insane, and I was a little bit insane when he died, that was 67. What age Yes, you? about 17. So what kind of made me really crazy was that you had this thing like bad thoughts, that you couldn't have bad thoughts. And I was trying not to have bad thoughts, which is a very difficult job, impossible. So I remember going to confession once and going, uh, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. It's an hour since my last confession. And the priest was like, what? <laughs> what I was like, right? well, I can't stop having bad thoughts. And he got really angry and told me to get out of the confession box and all. At which point I thought, you know, I'm not sure this works, you know. I'm not sure that the anti-life thing is going to be very successful as a theory of existence. You know, and and it's actually it was deep. that was at seven seventeen at seventy one. How what's your philosophy on it now? Are you any further down the line? I'm for, not really. You know, I I still think back, back further than you were at yeah, seventeen. I still think. Um, you know, the tragedy is that you kind of lose your religion, and like I'm always fascinated with people who say things like, "Oh, sure, they'll meet in the next life," and I'm like, "No, they won't." You know, and it's a tragedy that you believe that in a way because it's a great lie. It's a great comfort to believe there's an afterlife and, you know, another existence after this one. But it's kind of, it, you know, and, and well, if you were... a way of controlling us, though, say, be good now and yeah, you're good. Yeah. You might get something in the next yeah, life. Yeah, but if you're a betting man like I am, it's a good each way bet to believe in heaven and hell because, you know, if, if it did happen to be true... You know, you're putting your You can't lose by being spiritual, by being faithful, by being Catholic. You can't lose. It's, but who are you betting on at the moment? <laughs> I'm thinking of going back to the priest for confession before I conquer Barry. What was your, your relationship with your father like? Always difficult and um, always stressful. But you made a movie about him, essentially, in the name of the father, didn't you? Yeah, I did, you know... I, I think, I don't know if I told you that, that at the end of that movie in, in the Savoy... He came up and whispered into you, yeah, I love you, and yeah, you were taken aback. Yeah, and I was like, whoa. 
And I remember pushing him out and looking at him going, I never heard you saying that, but I didn't say back, I love you too. You know, I was so shocked or so, it was so unusual. And, um, but, you know, the more I think about him, it, you know, I think how great he was. You know, him and me ma, like, they worked two or three jobs and me ma worked in the North Star and dad worked in the dog track. And then on the weekends, he got the lathers out and fixed the house or did some job around the place. He was a non-stop. So you had a few Bob on, in the area? You're... We were the... We were the... The aristocrats of... Yeah, of, um, of Sheriff Street. We yeah. were the poshies. We yeah. were the the ones with three stories. And you, and you were, as the, the most privileged one, you were the extra aristocrat, uh, little Lord Fauntleroy. I was... The, that's exactly... And that, when I was about 18, I had like a a kind of suede jacket and kind of brown trousers. And I remember fellas on the North Circular singing, he's a dedicated follower of fashion. <laughs> you had a London accent as well. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I remember all that growing up. And when you were that age, were you? Where would you watch movies? Could you go and watch Goddard or Fellini or that kind of stuff? No, or? I'd watch the following up or with the fella hanging off the cliff, over in over in East Wall in the church. That's the first movies I saw. Yeah. I mean, the first actual true artistic event that ever had a big impact on me was going to see Shane in the Protestant Hall in the Protestant Hall that was Sean O'Casey's original church on uh, you know over on the lower Sheriff Street Abercorn Road and they had a Protestant church there that was in disrepair and I remember being freaked out because I went into it once and there was birds flying around because there was a hole in the roof and they yeah. had to fix the hole in the roof so they had Shane for sixpence on in the cinema. And I went up to Anto and I said, can we go, can we go to that? And he was like, what do you mean, Cheryl? I was like, like, it's the Protestant church. They're, they're saving up for the Protestant church, which was the devil, really. And he was like, but it's only sixpence in, Cheryl. Did and you go straight to hell for six six for, Yeah, I, I, I mean, we paid our sixpence in and sat there and the re the projector was in the aisle, you know, so you could hear it. What age were you then? I'd say I was eight. Eight. Yeah, and when the when they were shown the movie, it broke. The projector broke, and so they couldn't. They tried to put it back together again. They couldn't make the film work. So all the Protestant men who I kind of didn't know were you looking for horns at the back of their heads? Yeah, or they, they but the they beast? all. They all got up on the stage and said, "Don't go now. We're going. We're going to do a show." So they all went to the back of the stage, rubbing their face, and I was like, "What are they doing back there?" And when they turned around, they all had black faces. They had blue polish on their face, and all you could see was their teeth and their eyes. And they got one of them and they put him on the table and they did an old sketch. They must have done it before, of an operation on this man on his heart, and his heart was an alarm clock that went off, and he jumped up off the table. And they ran around the table after him and I fainted and I was carried out of the hall. You actually fainted? I did. I was fainted. I was so terrified. I thought I actually was in hell. Because you're with a bunch of Protestants yeah. in the church. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, um, the, the Project Art Centre, in in, oh, yeah. was that the late 60s that you, you started there? Yeah, it was the late 60s down in Abbey Street, you know, opposite the 
Abbey Theatre. And Colm O'Brien, Lord rest him, he just died there a few months ago. Um, he started it with a bunch of visual artists. And Lee Gallagher had done a play or two there. And we came in, me and Peter and Neil Jordan. He was a visual artist. Uh, Lee Gallagher was well, a no, visual artist. No, Neil Jordan, wasn't he? Yeah, Neil, well, the funny thing about Neil was he was more of a visual artist than I was, but I don't know if he was a visual artist. He was a painter, kind of, yeah. you know. But His what, sisters were all painters. What was it, is it in 1971 you and him wrote that wrote that play um, about abuse in Artane? Yeah. Journal of a Whole. And yeah, his, yeah. Neil's father was very much not happy that because the Pope John had, um, yeah. his memoir was called The Journal of the Soul. Yeah. And um, well, you you when you put the play on at the uh, the yeah. art centre, you got rosary beads and and bullets in the post. Yeah, yeah. And one of the reviews said, "What was it that this is worse than necrophilia?" No, that was a different show. That the honourable review for that one was the best review we ever, second best review we ever got, was a fella called Des Rush. I think Des was like very friendly with Archbishop McQuaid and. He wrote for Indo, and the when we did the gay sweatshop, the headline was "Worse than necrophilia," and the phones yeah. just went. Thur, thur, and thur, you, you got lost your funding, didn't you? We lost six grand, yeah, and, which was a lot in '71, oh, wasn't it? Well, my house cost four thousand. Yeah. So it was a house and a half, and uh, yeah, we lost the funding, but we, you know, we eventually got it back. But you, what was it? There was a meeting with the Lord Mayor of, of Dublin. And and you had nearly broke the door down because they were giving out about the the, the, the gay sweatshop plays. No, it, it by that stage I was like. But they were condemning you for putting on those plays. Oh yeah, they? yeah, they were. And I think what happened was, I had had a fight with me dad. He knocked out me tooth. They had a long hair and, and no tooth, and uh, the arch. So a kind of authority figures weren't weren't in for. I have to. Why did your dad knock your tooth out? It it was a row because we were all in the house and Johnny was sitting at the fire, I think. And my dad came in and said something like, "You know, go get coal." And I was like, "Leave it, Johnny. Just do what you want." This was after Frankie died. I think yeah. I was just challenging him. There was a bit of tension in the house. A lot of tension. Yeah. And and I think I went to hit him, but he was quicker. And as I got up fast to hit him. He hit me and my tooth was on a, it's still there. My tooth was on a string and it fell down and I couldn't talk to it. And and everybody was laughing and crying at the same time. And I went to call the cops. Why? I have no idea. But anyway, my man, dad, or my man's sister, Ida, were hanging out with me. And I went upstairs and I pulled the mirror off the wall. It was screwed in. And I came down and I kicked the door in and I held the mirror up in front of me down and said, look at yourself. <laughs> but what was the row with, with the Lord Mayor over the Dublin sweatshirt? Well, that was, he was a replacement dad. So yeah. everybody then after that became a replacement authority figure. And that row was, you know, what was happening was in Europe, all the politicians in Europe were getting a lot of stick about the gay sweatshop and the grant being taken. So at the top level of the government, they were getting big stick in Europe. But down at the councillor level on the road, like Rohini, Ned Brennan, who I got to know very well. I got to know them all. Who's Ned Brennan? Ned Brennan was a councillor and he was, 
he he said that they were all funny bunnies and funny bunnies became the big term and I was like Ned what's up with you like you know like it's only a theatre show or whatever I said well, what harm do you think it could do and he said I was afraid my son would see it and he'd turn into a queer and I'm like it doesn't work that way Ned and he's like no and I'm like no so I actually convinced him to vote with me but what happened was that one of our members of the project wrote a letter without telling me to the to the uh, Lord Mayor. And the Lord Mayor had the letter and the letter said basically that they'd be we'd be more responsible in future. So this was up in City Hall and yeah. you know there's two little gates. And I was just there and I just my head went and I kicked in the gates. And there was two fellas from Cabra with spears. When spears, because they had spears, like they had little spears to, they, that was the, the 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 regalia. You know, they had uniforms, long flowing robes, and two spears. And you had no tooth. And I had no tooth. And they were trying Good to stop him. me with the spears going <laughs> by them. And I remember going up to the Lord Mayor, and I, I kind of, I remember his mayor chain. I don't, I don't know if I grabbed it, but I, I did grab him and I just said to him, now we were responsible. You're the irresponsible ones and stick your money up your hole. Yeah. That's actually true. <laughs> and <laughs> I know it's terrible, a little tyke from Sheriff but But didn't you also say th that the only way Ireland was going to change was to, if there was a revolution? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I still think that, you know, I still think that, Barry, I think that in many ways in you can't have an encounter with the Irish legal system and not think it should change. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to be out of your mind. But I'm curious that when you won my left, when you won two Academy Awards, yeah. March 1990, yeah. Hoi was on the TV congratulating yeah. all, everyone, including you, mm. the winners. And in three years prior to that, he disbanded the Irish Film Board. Yeah. Like, was he one of the ones you would have put up against the wall if the revolution had happened? Yeah, I suppose he would have been, you know. Um, he was he was charismatic, and he was he was, um, you know, he introduced that thing for artists, you know, the tax free. And I remember somebody interviewed me, and I had the distinction and stupidity of being the only person in Ireland to to question it and say it wasn't a good idea. And when they asked me why it wasn't a good idea, I said, well, it, it just means none of the artists, will, everybody will be afraid to say anything about the government. And unconsciously, they'll all be fucking lick asses. So they'd kind of neutered you by giving you a few bob. That's it, yeah. yeah. I think, And I think that did happen in Ireland. Like, the, the apart from the project, that there was no social theatre, you know, in the 90s. After the project, it's, it's there's nothing. It's, it's... It, it, you know, I, I don't see much. I'm sure there is, you know, but there's yeah. not like a cohesive, I would say, left-leaning liberal. Um, was that what the project was like back then? You know, you two were, were, were young you two were there and there was yeah. Gabriel Byrne and all, like, was it yeah. all, all of these young creatives, mavericks together? What yeah. was Bono like then? Bono, Bono was the toughest little bastard of them all. Yeah. And, what was he? Did you ever get in a scrap with him? Yeah, did you? I did, and it wasn't. Did he with knock him. another tooth out? How many, how many teeth did you have to lose? 
Well, what actually happened was we were in the project and it was the interval in U2's gig and Paul McGuinness was there, I remember, and Larry and Edge, the whole band, Mannix, myself, I don't know who else, and the Black Catholics were outside kicking the door. And the Black Catholics were a group who hated U2. And they were kicking the door so much they were doing my head, you know? And I was like, and everybody's like, ignored them. And I was like, no. Did you have any access to spears or anything at the time? No. But they kept kicking the door, door, boom, boom, boom. And so I said to Mannix, will we sort these out? And he was like, yeah. And if you know Mannix, like, you don't want the door to open and Mannix to be there standing. So I said to the band or whatever, will we sort them out? And Bono was like, yeah. So we went out flying, me, Mannix and Bono. It's a true story. And after a few, they all fucking ran. So we gave them a few kicks and a few digs. And then I saw Mannix battering the fella and I dragged them off. And then Mannix looked around kind of scared because there was another guy and it was Bono. And he was just in a funk. And we actually had to go over and pull him off, you know. You were talking earlier about um, nationalism, or you seem to be. You, you said that the field, that it's probably about the IRA and nationalism and, and it, it's not about the past. Yeah. Is, is that how you still feel about it? You see, I think that there's no... I don't understand, and, and you can do a period movie, but there's no point in a period movie because every movie is about the present. If it's not, it has no function in the present. Yeah. You know, people go to a movie and they think, oh, it's about me. That's what makes it work. And the difficulty with making commercial cinema is that the audience is really outside Ireland, mostly in America. And yeah, they have to believe it's about them. And it's hard to do that with an Irish movie. Yeah. So you have to find strategies to kind of engage them. And so the field is about, yeah, it's about this hunger for land, this anger over famine. I still go down there, you know. I'm going to West Cork now and I'm like looking at the fields and thinking of all the people that died there and the famine and the anger that still exists, you know. Because Richard Harris playing Bull McCabe says, um, was it our fathers, 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 fathers built those walls, Mm. dug the soil with their bare hands. And our souls are buried there and your sons, sons, sons will take care of it, boy. And without the land, we're nothing. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't want to be trite about this, but the, the tragic film, the tragic, the tragic farm shootings in Canturk earlier in the year had echoes of all that, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I watched that and I was thinking, oh, my God, this is worse than the field. Like, you know, this is, a, you know, a father saying, like, come on, son, we'll go kill our, our brother and then we kill ourselves. Why? Because we don't, we're not getting the land. So if we're not getting the land, life's not worth living. I mean, that's what it's essentially, yeah. you know, sad. Very sad. Very, very sad. Um, You had a few, I presume you didn't knock your tooth out, but you had a few rows with um Richard Harris over at Bumba Cave. Yeah. Did he want to play the role like King, King Lear and you didn't? Yeah, it was kind of like, it, not so much... Like, he was kind of going on about it was like the Irish King Lear, and I just wanted it to be the bull, not so maybe, you know, aristocratic, but he could be right, you know. These things are differences of degree, you know. They're like, um, 
just ways of, you know, it, this idea of directing actors is for the boards because you, you can't really make somebody be somebody they're not. It, you know, like in other words, you can get them to interpret who they are or the character, but if they if they if they can't change who they are for you, you know, they can go a good distance. But the narrative that they carry of what they think the story is about is their narrative. It's what they believe it to be about. And fundamentally, you can't change that. So Richard, he just wanted the bull to be liked. You know what I mean? He, he You know what I mean? Early on in the movie, he, he does the speech to the priest and he took his hat off and he cried. And I was like, fuck this, you know. Not because I didn't particularly want to engage and to get the audience to empathize with him. But I just thought that way down the road at the end of the movie, if early on they like him and feel sorry for him, at the end, I don't know what they're going to feel. And I just thought that if you held that back from the audience, by the end, they'll feel sorry for him and think, oh, God, God help him. He's insane because the movie goes very far out. You know, what was it like um, directing Daniel Day-Lewis? What's he like? Daniel is. Oh, God, I saw him on the television last night. I was just going through YouTube I was trying to connect up my television to the phone and Daniel came on and he was talking to somebody about acting and he I didn't really realise you know it was very emotional for me he was talking about my left foot he has a smile that's like a megawatt smile like it's a mega it's a Julia Roberts smile you know it's like could take over the world. You and know? what's it like when the smile is turned off and he's pissed Yo, off? Oh, look out. <laughs> you don't want to fight with Daniel. You know, I mean, you could fight with Harris and it would be... Like, Harris had the reputation, I think he knocked out, like, Brando and John Houston. I mean, he hit them, you know? Have you knocked out anyone? No. I'm not that... But did you want to knock out Harvey Weinstein that time when he was trying to... Yeah, put, I did. Put a move on you over into the West? I did, you know, Harvey, it, it sounds like I fight everybody and I do. But once you don't fight with yourself, that's the main thing. Yeah, I do put it out there and I don't hold back sometimes. But the the thing with Harvey was. You gave him a heart attack, didn't you? I did give him a heart attack and I didn't, you know, I don't know what was going on. Um, Him and his brother were trying to bully me into a thing and I just decided I'll try and. You know, I'll 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 hit them a dig. I thought, and then I thought, you know, and I, then I'll have to do what they tell me, and so I decided I'd make them hit me. So the best thing to do would be to insult them, you know. So I start out, you fat effers and bastards, you know, fat obscene brothers, and it was having no effect. And then I just don't know where it came from, but I just said, I I don't think, and I was like, what will I say next? And I said, I don't think you've any money. And Harvey went nuts ran in the bathroom and came out with blood coming out his nose, down his nostrils. Coke? I, I, I suspect so, but I, look, I never thought he was like that. I thought he was Diet Coke. You know, because he used to drink like 20 cans of Diet Coke a day. You Literally, you would go into his room in the Savoy and there'd be eight cans of Diet Coke on the, on the floor. James Mitchell said it was like central, like... It was like Central Park. You know, you'd walk across the carpet and you'd hear crunch, crunch, and that was the potato chips and the Diet Cokes. <laughs> and that's what it was like. You know, they were, they were, it, here's the thing. I know Harvey 
he's done terrible things and all and he had one ability that nobody else I ever met in the film world had which is and this is the weird uncanny you don't feel good you know when he saw your movie he loved it to the point of possession now that's a very difficult thing to do because most people they'll see something they'll appreciate it like it no when Harvey saw it and loved it it was his movie was his movie. It was yeah. no longer your movie. It was his movie. And it felt both like, I suppose what he was like, it felt like love and the opposite at the same time. You know, like you were like, whoa, what just happened? Tell me, what happened with you and Gabriel Byrne on um, In the Name of the Father? You know, that was, uh, that was very odd. We, you know, it was a kind of confluence of, a lot of things that came together where Gabriel got into the role of being the daddy, <laughs> you know, where he was the authority figure and he'd bought the rights to Jerry Conlon's book. And I don't know what happened, but I think he had bought it and never really said to me that he wanted Johnny Depp to do it, you know? And maybe he wanted to play Giuseppe himself. I don't know. I mean, I have to ask him this. I should be asking him, not talking to you about it, Barry, but I think there was something like that and I just ignored it all and, and cast Daniel Day. And it wasn't even, I cast Daniel Day. What happened was, on a Friday, I said to the studios, what do you think of Daniel Day-Lewis? He'd, he'd, I could ask him, he did my left foot, you know? And he, he loves the script. And they're like, who, Daniel? Oh, yeah, that fellow from my left foot. And last time Higgins came out that Friday... And by Sunday night, he was a megastar. Like, it made like 100 million. And they were ringing me <laughs> on every phone around Dublin. And Daniel was, we had the money, whatever we wanted, by Friday, Sunday. And I think it was just like a, you know, like, a, you know, normally you do take a movie and it takes a long time to get going. But the, the horse just bolted. And I think both me and Gabriel were like trying to hold on and, you know, make the movie and it, 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 I think it got into conflicts with him and other, another movie had to do, but like he was great. He's the, the father of the story. He bought the book. He saw the movie before anybody. So I can't criticize him. It was unfortunate that we actually had an argument, you know? Yeah. But it's, has it been ever resolved? Yeah, we talked to each other, but I don't know if it's ever been resolved. I love Gabriel. He's a sweet heart and he's a great writer. And uh, he's in New York now. I ne I very rarely see him. Um, I, I yeah, I'd I'd like to make up for him if I could. If I, you know, if if there's that in there, that's what do you need to make up for? Because we had a big row on the set, you know. Thirty years ago. Yeah, <laughs> that's the way <laughs> mo movies are like. That's why life is like, though, isn't it? Just mm -hmm. to go back to your father for a second. Mm -hmm. When you're accused of lying. In the name of the father, you said that the the real lie was saying it's a film about the Guildford Four when it's really a, about a non-violent parent. Yeah, is is that what 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 the, what the movie is really about, Giuseppe? Yeah. Okay. So look, I, I, can I explain this in another way? And don't worry, I won't be too controversial, and I won't get you in trouble. Off you go. I'm doing the story of the murder of Sophie Toscan the Plantier, and. It's a true crime story about a woman who died. 
And no matter what you do, you're exploiting a dead woman who got murdered, no matter what you do. So you have to have an objective. You have to have, what's my objective here? What, how can I make the world a little bit better place? And my only objective can be to try as hard as I can to find who did it, to find the truth. That's the only reason to continue to go at it. And when you have an objective that's kind of beyond the normal, a bit insane and maybe a bit right, like I'll make a movie about an, a non-violent father and I'll make him the hero in a situation where there's a, a war or troubles taking place. That's a position nobody can attack you on. They can't, they can't win because your position is Gandhi-like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like you're saying, well, F off. I, I could care less what you think. And so I didn't care what they thought. Like and when they would say... What's your position on Ian Bailey then? Well, my position on Ian Bailey I is... I know everyone has an opinion, but what's your opinion? The, the, the trouble with that question, Barry, is that here's the way true crime works. He did it, he didn't. He did it, he didn't. That's the way it works. So everything has to be about keeping the audience suspended for hours and hours and hours. But So what we're doing is getting to the truth of, like I went down the other day and you may think I'm a bit crazy, but I rolled around in the briars and brambles. Why am I not surprised? Yeah. <laughs> and I rolled around in the briars and brambles to get those, see those scratches? Yeah. And I want to see, now it's very hard to harm yourself. You know, it's because your mind, like I tried to get scratches, in other words, to see what it'd be like. But we're talking about the murder of a woman here. Yeah, yeah. but but Bailey had scratches, which be, everybody became obsessed with on his hands. So I wanted to see what the scratches, have, have you noticed the scratches on my hands? No. Okay, so they're there, but but this becomes a very important thing in the story. And so the the the, the thing with Bay with Bailey is I'm trying to find the situation where and it happened at Christmas. It was two days before Christmas. And I'm just trying to I suppose this would be the question. You know me too. Me too, I believe her. Yeah. So that's what I think. Me too, I believe her. And I believe Mary Farrell now. And I believe she didn't see Ian Bailey. I'm not saying he didn't do the murder, but I believe she didn't see him at Kilfather Cross, right? So she said that in 2004, right? And it's many, 16 years later, and every single person, including in the high court for five days, asked her, who was the guy in the car with you? Like she was out with somebody else in a car. And I'm looking at them and I'm going, why are you asking that question? Oh, why? Why? She was out with somebody in a car. So what? At two in the morning. So what? I'm like, so what? What's the question? What's the real question? If it wasn't Ian Bailey you saw at Kilfoda Bridge, who was it? Who do you think it was? If it wasn't Ian Bailey, who well, was Well, that's the question. Yeah. Have you spent much time with him? Oh, I have spent hours and hours and hours. Like I, I explained to the man in Sky, Gary Davy, who's the head of Sky. I said, Gary, here's the problem. Who commissioned it? Yeah, yeah, he commissioned it. I said, 
we've so much footage that if you sat there in the cinema and watched it on a 40-hour week, after 10 weeks, you wouldn't have watched it all. Never mind edited it. That's how big an operation this has been. It's been six, seven years. And it's weird because, it, you know, it kind of obviously you can't live with murder all the time in your head, but... But it's still there, though, isn't it? It's there, and like it's so you? sad. Like, my thing is to try and get justice for the for the family and for Sophie. What, what's, what, why does Ian Bailey want to be involved then? What's his thing for it? His thing is to kind of go as extreme and as far out as he can in people knowing who he is. Now, we all know he's a centric character. He's unusual. He's English. He's a big performer. And and I think he just wants to be known. But as a, as a famous director, producer, mm-hmm. worked with millions of great yeah. actors, how do you know it's not a performance for, for the cameras? That's the most interesting question you asked. <laughs> because now you're dealing with real life. You're not dealing with makey up. And you're dealing with um, life and death. And... At the end of the day, you and can't, a murdered woman, and a murdered woman, and you can never know what the truth is until you find the truth. But trying to do that and trying to get answers is the most difficult thing. You know, trying to get answers is the most difficult thing. And how close are you at the, at the moment to, to to finding the inverted commas the truth? Well, I think we're quite a bit of the way along. It's very, very difficult because, you know, the problem is it's an ongoing investigation. And when it's an ongoing investigation, nobody has to tell you. you So what's the the ending, though? Well, the ending is that we, uh, like, it's almost like I have to become like the police and pursue the truth on my own. Just to wrap up, t- tell me what you're 71, you'll be 72 obviously in, in February. What great truths have you learned about life? If you if you want to get into a fight, make sure you have Bono with you. That would be a very good hey, Listen, that's not a bad one. What Marilyn Brando said to Al Pacino, Al Pacino was asking Brando about, you know, like I suppose Al was thinking I'm the next kind of Brando and I think he was asking for advice on, on acting, you know. And he said to Marilyn, Marilyn, what's your advice? And Brando said, never go to court. That, I would say, is very good advice to most people, especially in Ireland. Jim Sheridan, Merry Christmas. It's been great having you in. It's okay. been a roller coaster. <laughs> the Barry Egan Tapes on News Talk.